for December 17th, 2012. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 233, Bilbo Has Diabetes. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Matt Rather has been usurped by a dragon, and I, Peter Fenzel, will be our host as we talk about The Hobbit. We talk about, I think, a little bit of Life of Pi action, maybe talk a little bit about the holidays. It's been a, Speaking of the holidays, before I get going, this episode of the Overthinking It podcast is brought to you Again, by us, by the Overthinking It gift guide, which is a way that you can find presents to give to the overthinkers in your life uh, that they will enjoy, recommendations from us that also happen to bring you through our Amazon affiliate link, which is an important source of revenue for the site, pays for a lot of our hosting costs for the year. So, uh, yeah, it doesn't cost you anything extra. We try to provide a little value, and then, yeah, you go on there, you buy some presents, everything's uh there's still time you know get delivery before christmas it's awesome or before the end of hanukkah if you get express right and uh you can get all that done it's gonna be awesome i wanted to share a quick couple of the things and i'm not gonna i don't know who obviously we're not gonna compromise anyone's privacy here but a couple of the awesome things that people have bought from the gift guide or from outside the gift guide using our affiliate link did somebody buy week. wii u pete did somebody buy wii u uh the wii u is still out there ah. the wii u is a- the dream is still alive. You could you could be the first person to use the Overthinking It affiliate link to buy a Wii U, which I think is uh, a, a great honor. Probably the greatest honor humanity can confer on an individual <laughs> or a civilian. I mean, ben, ben knows the military stuff a little bit better, so maybe he can confirm when we get to his turn on the question. No, but as the, far the, as civilians are concerned. The Wii is as good as it gets. That's Okay. That's that's what that was my opinion the whole time. I'm, and I don't know why people would buy other things like food or water or anything. Wii U, it's all about that. All right. Um, so we had someone buy uh, volumes one through six of a Sailor Moon box set, which is awesome and great. We had someone buy uh, OXO Good Grips Dough Blender with blades, which is the best kind of dough blender, the one that has blades. Uh, and we had somebody buy some stainless steel coffee filter discs for use in Mark, the AeroPress coffee maker, which I know you're a big fan of. Stainless uh, steel. And- That's fancy time. That's nice. Yeah. That is the that is the least stainable of steels. Of all the variety of steels and all the gin joints in all the world, these are the <laughs> ones that are stainless. <laughs> we should, we should and- have, hey, just a side note. At some point, we should do a thing and over thinking about the riddle of stainless steel. Yeah, yeah the riddle of stainless steel. <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely. It's like uh, steel. Steel is nothing next to the brush that brushes it, or something. <laughs> <laughs> steel is nothing next to the refrigerator on which it is surfaced. Uh, and then somebody did buy the Claude Viver album. I believe that's how you pronounce it. I may be incorrect. Nice. That uh, Stokes was recommending. And we've seen a lot of sales of John Parrish's Too Hard to Handle Mara Cunningham novel, which is awesome. And that's uh, Overthinker John Parrish is a mystery novelist, a thriller novelist. And the Mara Cunningham series, this is episode two, novel two. First one was Too Close to Miss. I love that book. Haven't read this one yet, but it's out there. You can get it through the gift guide, uh, and you can get it on Amazon, and it's awesome. Yes, I have yeah. read it, and I can vouch for it. And they can say that's fantastic. If you like the first one, you'll love the second one. Um, mm-hmm. If you uh, haven't read the first one, but you like thriller mystery novels, you will love this one. Check it out. Excellent. Cool, cool, cool. Great. So now that Rather is not here to go on for another eight minutes about the gift guide, uh, no <laughs> apologies, of course, around the board. Um, no, don't, don't apologize. No, I apologize for nothing. I, <laughs> Overthinking means never having to say you're sorry. Exactly, exactly. So let's jump into the question of the week. So this 
weekend's biggest movie was probably Red Dawn. No, that came out <laughs> several weeks ago. Uh, and we have yet to talk about it. This weekend's biggest movie was The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, the first chapter in the uh, re-prequeling of the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings film franchise and the beloved uh, novel by J.R.R. Tolkien, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. We love things that are surprises here on Overthinking It. We love it when, when Hollywood surprises us or New Zealandy would surprises us or whatever you want to call it that. The Amy Industrial Complex. Uh, so your question for the week panel is uh, we need another movie that uses that totally righteous subtitle of an unexpected blank. As opposed to all the movies where it's a given that what is happening is going to be expected. Right, so like, if it weren't a Hobbit, an unexpected journey, you would know all the events of the movie beforehand. But because it's an unexpected journey, it's a surprise. So here's the challenge: What movie do you want to see with an uh, unex- unexpected blank for a subtitle? And we're going to toss it over to our chief naval strategist, Ben Adams. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing all right. I finished finals on Friday, so I'm I'm happy to be overthinking and not actually thinking. So it's it's pretty exciting. Nice, nice. Do you do you keep the level of in your legal studies? Do you keep the level of thinking more or less commensurate with the challenge of the task at hand and its appropriate <laughs> gravity? I, I, I try to. All right, that's, that's that sounds like it would be prudent, I suppose. So yeah, but but that's expected. That's totally expected. Yeah, the the, the level the, it's a little harder to overthink civil procedure or you know other various legal topics. So Mm-mm. it's a little harder to get to the overthinking there. I like to talk about fairy naturae because you get to talk about foxes. And then you can talk a little about that. Uh, it's very legal joke. Yay. Uh, so, Ben, if that's the expected part of your life, what is the unexpected filmic fantasy that you want to see happen? Well, you know, Hobbit is this big budget, you know, sprawling, beautiful movie. And that's kind of going to dominate the field for big spectacle movies for, what, the next eight years? I don't know how many Hobbits they're making, but, you know. They're, they're going to be making those for a while. So I'm going to make a small-scale drama about people that are in dire straits, and they need just a little bit of cash, and they don't think they have it. And so then the greatest thing in the, in the world happens, which is they reach in their pocket an unexpected bill. You know, Ooh. that moment of when you find the $20 bill that you didn't remember you had in a jacket pocket. And so they're going to find it at the, at the exact right time. We're going to follow the bill around to a cast of various celebrities Mm-hmm. As they need this money in whatever dire straits, you know, it's like a pay it forward type drama. It'll it'll be very exciting. So the subtitle is like an unexpected bill or like an unexpected twenty. Is the is the main yeah, one unexpected sort of Hollywood, 20, yeah. Hollywood All Stars Hollywood All Stars to the rescue or something or just like yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's it's a whole bunch of Hollywood celebrities playing people who who twenty dollars is going to save them their problems. So they're not playing themselves because that's just not going to work. I got you. you know, so, so it's they need their movie. The I'm not yeah. there Bob Dylan movie where they all played Bob Dylan except I'll play somebody who found twenty bucks. I was yeah, thinking more along the lines much. of a rom com that's named after a major holiday. Um, so it could be like I don't know, like uh, you know, instead of like Valentine's Day or New Year's Eve or something like that, like um, random bank holiday in England: <laughs> colon an unexpected twenty. <laughs> the the bank, May bank holiday and unexpected bank holiday. Bank error in your favor: an unexpected holiday. Nice, nice. I like it. Like, though. <laughs> that's true that was it was you got two hundred dollars for a bank error in your favor in monopoly yeah that was like the best uh i think it was community chess card that was like the best one. Oh man jeez 
Gosh, the, the inflation on that. I mean, if you'd, if you'd put, or rather the compound interest, if you'd put that bank error to work when the first Monopoly game came out, you'd have thousands of, of imaginary dollars. Right. Uh, Mark Lee, Mark Lee, what <laughs> unexpected journey are you going on, Mark? I'm going for journey and unexpected journey. Uh, because <laughs> what, um, <clears throat> what, what else would a title, an unexpected journey, uh, make you think about except for the seminal 80s rock band? Um, journey, right? Um, so, journey and unexpected journey would be a um, a a crossover uh, biopic of the band uh, with a a fantasy epic. Um, so, along the, along the way, a collection of elves and dwarves and humans uh, they form a band. Um, they rock out. Um, Steve Perry and, and somebody Tolkienify Steve Perry's, Perry's name while I'm talking um, will uh, abruptly leave the band and uh, and and then he will be replaced by a lookalike who uh, who belongs to a, a closely related but different race. Um, this, of course, being a reference to Steve Perry being replaced by a Filipino a sound alike of Steve Perry who was discovered by the band um, uh, from his YouTube covers <laughs> of, of Journey songs. So you you were really talking about how Steve Perry the White was replaced by Steve Perry the Southeast Asian. <laughs> there you go, <laughs> got it. Nailed it. Fly you, fly fools. Or how he would say it when he's falling into Kaza Doom, as <laughs> um, <laughs> he has to battle the Balrog. Yeah. Well, oh, I, would, I, was, I would watch what? this. Would you watch this? I would watch, watch this. I would watch the crap out of a a, a Hobbit set to Journey music. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. We should just recut it right now. We should just get a copy of The Hobbit, and we should just put a Journey backing track against the whole thing. I think it would be pretty awesome. I think that would work out. Uh, I'm going to say um, Madison County and Unexpected Bridges of, uh, which is about which is a prequel. It's like an episode one prequel about how people come to get to Madison County. Uh, they have a lot of difficulty because there are a bunch of rivers and gorges that you have to cross in the country, in the, in the sort of rural areas of Madison County, where middle-aged people go to have uh, deep emotionally connective affairs with one another, um, and including, what was it, Meryl Streep and Clint Eastwood, I think, uh, were in that, in that movie. Um, but yeah, but they don't expect to be able to get across the, the gorge, but there are bridges, you see, and that's there's kind of like a call that's ushered out from that possibility. It's, it's, like, it, oh. it's not about the old-timey people that actually built the bridges. It's not just like a period piece about building bridges. Well, we have to save something for the pre-prequel. Okay. Because we, <laughs> we have to do the other franchise. But Bridges of Madison County was intended as a 10-part series with the last part published first. And then it works backwards, right? And it ends – the last one is, I think, the formation of the uh, the sort of initial igneous rock formations that led to the eventual kind of terrain of Madison County. It's mostly just footage of, of like melted stone. Uh, in kind of a magma type situation, but it's really soulful and kind of has this touching sexual quality. That's really the characteristic <laughs> of the Madison franchise. Um, <laughs> uh, and speaking of the speaking of the touches that are characteristic of the franchise, we have The Hobbit, which was up this weekend and which I saw and which I think you guys declined to see. Um, and then just to say something briefly about that, because I think it's worth addressing, uh, I almost didn't see The Hobbit. Uh, and the Lord of the Rings movies were a huge deal when they came out, right? Oh, I yeah, I, 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 I saw all of them on opening weekends. I think probably all of us did, right? If not opening yeah. weekends, we really wanted to see an opening weekend. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, for the first Lord of the Rings. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, it, it was, I was... It was totally huge, and it, but I, I'm personally am surprised at the relative ebb and enthusiasm for The Hobbit amongst 
many people who were really, really enthusiastic about the Lord of the Rings movies, especially because there's no sign, there's never been any sign that The Hobbit was going to be some sort of huge travesty. Right, like you know, if they made like the Darren Aronofsky RoboCop movie or whatever it was, they're gonna. If there's the new <laughs> RoboCop movie that's coming out, there's a pretty good solid chance that that's going to be a huge mess. And uh, and if you liked RoboCop, uh, you probably will be tremendously disappointed. <laughs> um, but, uh, Let's put it this way: Damon Lindelof did not come along to rewrite the script for The Hobbit in Unexpected Journey. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. There's every indication that The Hobbit. It's got Guillermo del Toro is on board, and Peter Jackson's on board, and yeah, there are things about it that. And then we can talk about this that maybe aren't especially exciting, but I'm surprised that the level of enthusiasm for it feels subdued. I mean, it still made, you know, $86 million this weekend or something like that. It was, you know, a new record for December openings, but they were projecting 120 to 140 million for the opening weekend, the Hollywood people do. Of course, the Hollywood box office projections are always crazy, and, and I don't think that the math for them really makes a lot of sense. But, uh, but yeah, but I mean, you guys, I almost didn't go see it. I mean, I was at a movie theater on Saturday night, and I was like, eh, I think I'll go watch It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia on uh, iTunes instead, um, which I did with with Overthinker Ryan Chili, which was awesome. But um, but yeah, but you guys didn't see The Hobbit. Did you feel like you wanted to see it? I mean, obviously Ben's had finals, um, but you've had time to see some movies, right? And I, I think you guys have both seen some movies recently. What what was it about The Hobbit you feel failed to capture your imagination or energy that the Lord of the Rings movies succeeded in capturing? I think uh, any Lord of the Rings related story is going to pale horribly in comparison to Lord of the Rings in terms of the scope and the scale and stakes of the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? Uh, I mean, like, Ultimate Battle of Good and Evil, um, uh, you know, fantastic heroism that saves all of Middle-earth, all that sort of stuff is in um, in the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, and The Hobbit... uh, to the extent that I'm aware of the Hobbit story, shame to admit I haven't read it. I haven't read the book. and I'm not super familiar with the story. Uh, it doesn't have really any of that stuff, right? It's just about Bilbo going to find the ring and getting it. Well, the ring is a rather minor plot point in The Hobbit. Um, the the Hobbit is a story. Just for those of us who are who might be unfamiliar, the Hobbit is about is a dragon slaying story, right? It's about a dragon that takes over a dwarven kingdom and kind of drives everybody out, and sort of ends up residing in this place called the Lonely Mountain, Erebor, I believe is what it's called. Uh, and uh, and and the dwarves kind of have to flee into exile, and and through various circumstances, their numbers dwindle. And there's one kind of prince who's left over from the dwarven kingdom. That's Thorin Oakenshield. Who is sort of sort of shops around to the various places in Middle Earth, looking for a, a way to get his homeland back, to like retake his country and retake his throne. And what the Hobbit story is is it's uh, Gandalf knows Thor and Oakenshield and is helping to coordinate the mission to take the mountain back. And Gandalf knows Bilbo Baggins from when Bilbo Baggins was a kid and used to put on fireworks spectaculars and has kind of a hunch that it's a good idea to bring uh, Bilbo Baggins along on the trip, mostly because dragons never encounter hobbits. Uh, just they aren't in the same natural habitat. And so um, you're probably going to need someone to sneak up on the dragon at some point because you can't face it head on. And so the main justification for taking Bilbo along is like, well, the dragon won't be able to smell him because he's kind <laughs> of a thing the dragon hasn't seen before. He's small, he's quiet. But Gandalf sort of says like, actually, you know, and we'll get into this more. It's like it's it's sort of like we're, I know we're kind of fighting the forces of evil. And when I want to fight the forces of evil, I kind of want to bring the forces of good along. But the more I think about it, the more I realize that the forces of good aren't really like the dudes with the shining magical swords who go out and fight the Nazgul. I mean, of course, that's irony, too, because the Nazgul didn't end up getting killed by a dude with a magical sword, killed by a hobbit and a lady with a magical sword. Uh, the hobbit had a magical sword. The lady just had her ladiness, which was also awesome. Um 
No, but the real goodness in life, in the world, is the goodness of sort of small decencies and kindnesses and, and acts of love and acts of generosity. And uh, he felt like he encountered these sorts of things among the hobbits and with Bilbo more than he encountered them in many of the other places. So it's like, okay, I want to bring along this generally good person who is going to have hopefully a couple useful skills. This will be good for him, for his adventure, get, sort of shake him out of his life. But also, I'm just sort of crazy and smoke a lot of tabak or whatever <laughs> leaf they call it. So, so all that is to say um, that, yes, the stakes in this movie are far uh, less than they are in um, – far greater than they are in Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean yeah. The, a little bit so, more history of it, yeah. And, oh, go ahead. Go, sorry, yeah, so that combined com- – so the low stakes combined with the sense that, like, I have seen all of Middle Earth that I really care to see. Um, mm-hmm. That Those two things combined to me being like, eh, I'm not going to go on seeing it. Like, pack schedule for the weekend, holiday parties, all that kind of stuff as well. Contributed to it, um, but yeah, that's my take on it. Ben? What what did it for me was partially the low stakes, but combined with the dilution of it over three movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you've got, I loved the Lord of the Rings movies, but those are three books into three long movies. And even then, it drags at places. I mean, I love the original Lord of the Rings movies, but there are definitely bits where it's a bit of a slog. So taking one book that I gather is less eventful than the Lord of the Rings books and stretching it over three movies, I'm not sure I have the the patience for that. I don't really want to go sit in a three-hour movie only to find out that, nope, we haven't even seen the dragon yet, or nope, we haven't even gotten close to accomplishing this goal. So yeah, it's kind of yeah. diluted over over three movies that I'm not really sure I'm willing to invest the time in. Yeah. Now, it's funny that, yeah, The Hobbit is probably more eventful than The Fellowship of the Ring, the book, just because The Fellowship of the Ring, the book has such long, expansive sections that are just people talking to each other and hanging out and right. like, sharing stories and stuff. But at the same time, you know, stretching it out into three is is still a tall order. And the events that do happen are of a more venal nature, I think, in general. Um like it feels a little more harmless. I mean, it was a children's book, right? I mean, not a book for right. children, but it was a book oriented toward a, a children's children and reading to children, and it, it was sort of seen as at the time, I believe, pretty pretty quaint in that way, right? And and uh, and entertaining and fun. And the thing that's charming about it is the kind of silly mentality of the hobbits against the the scope of the fantasy world and how endearing they are. Right, and meanwhile, the Lord of the Rings is this tremendously much more ambitious project, and a lot of people who liked the Hobbit at the time were like, "What is going on with these books? These things are nuts." You know, it'd sort of be like if you know J.K. Rowling came back after writing one Harry Potter book and had written like you know a giant you know eight hundred page story about Harry Potter's dad, right? Or like I guess it would be <laughs> Harry Potter's son. It'd be like Harry Potter's son dealing with genocide. Right, like, and it's like, well, we do have genocide in Harry Potter because Voldemort wants to. I'm oh, sorry, I shouldn't name him on the podcast. Uh, he wants to kill all the Muggles, I believe, as one of his sort of ancillary goals in his noseless quest for dominance. Um, yeah, the, but the he, Harry Potter books are are all, are kind of a progression. Like they're roughly age appropriate for the age Harry is in the books. I would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Tolkien books between the Hobbit and the Lord of the and the Lord of the Rings. It's like skipping from Harry Potter one to like Harry Potter five uh, or Harry Potter six. Like it's a hu- it's a big jump in terms of right. the audience expectation. So of course the movie is going to be different. Um, the movie, and I think that I mean they didn't have to make the movie different. They could have made the movie a lot more similar to the Lord of the Rings movies. The art the art style is very similar. Like the the sets are very like a lot of the aesthetic is going to be pretty much the same. Um, it definitely looks like they took a lot of stuff from the Lord of the Rings movies and kind of rehashed it. They have a lot of the music is similar, which is welcome and nice. Obviously it yeah. has most. Of the 
actors. Ian McKellen, and, yeah, I was about to say. But I mean, you're, what you're getting at there it speaks to the point what I was talking about earlier. I was saying, like, I've, I've seen more, uh, Middle Earth rendered in a way that is complete uh, already, and they're sort of, you know, they're, they're, they're going back to the, to the same aesthetic that they've created. That's, that's not really interesting to me. I mean, I, I'm probably in the minority in the say that I'll be more likely to see this um, if they, you know, had a different visual style uh, to apply to it. Um, I mean, you can't not have Ian McKellen in this if Ian McKellen is interested in it. Um, but you know, to sort of like set up the entire aesthetic of it in the same way as Lord of the Rings—that's a deliberate choice, and uh, in, I might argue a lazy one that uh, detracts mm-hmm. from my interest in seeing it. Yeah, I, I wonder how much the juggling around of the director in the early development of this movie affected that, right? Because originally, Del Tormo was going to direct it. And then Peter Jackson came in to direct because Peter Jackson didn't want to direct The Hobbit at first, right? Or, or there was a disagreement or something like that. Uh, and then it might have been different, I suppose. Uh, but then he did come in to direct it, and he and he's they're both among the screenwriters. Uh, so the movie the movie does feel a bit less of an our tour piece than the Lord of the Rings trilogy did. Like there's parts of it that kind of stick together as as our as our contributions from sort of different kinds of voices. There are lots of scenes uh, that could have been cut very easily. Right there's like a long discussion between Gandalf, Elrond, uh, and Galadriel about a bunch of stuff that doesn't have to be in this movie at all, except that it's necessary to frame it as a three-piece story. Right? Um, for for um, Ben, have you read The Hobbit? I have not. Okay, so so one of the deals with The Hobbit. Uh, is that you know Sauron is sort of present in the Hobbit as this shadowy figure called the Necromancer. He's he's sort of in the infant stages of his power. You know the big bad from the Lord of the Rings, and he's he's kind of starting to come back, but he hasn't really come back yet. And he he's sort of a mid-level threat in his own local area, um, but but people aren't really sure what's happening because that area is off in the woods. And so this this part of the woods is getting scary, and there are spiders and monsters that are showing up in the woods that didn't used to be there. And so Gandalf is concerned, and it's like this is kind of strange uh and it doesn't really end up coming to that much fruition in the book it's not the main plot of the book it's part of it there's definitely like a a, you know a a struggle with that sort of stuff it's not a huge part of this movie uh certainly Uh, this movie pretty much ends with them meeting Gollum. like they sort of get through the point where where he gets the ring which is not a major part of the hobbit i mean it is a big moment but it's not like a defining uh it's a it's a big scene but it's not a defining plot point Mm. um because actually, Tolkien had to go back. Uh, he didn't have to, but he chose to. When Tolkien wrote The Hobbit, the ring was just a magical ring. It didn't have this whole connotation of being this evil artifact. It was just this thing that happened to be in a treasure trove that this like squirrely little dude deep in this uh, ravine or whatever, like in this cave system, happened to like covet and hoard, and it happened to be a ring of invisibility. When he wrote Lord of the Rings, he went back and he revised and reissued a new edition of the, of the Hobbit where it sort of acknowledged that the ring has some sort of sinister power or that Gandalf kind of looks at it sideways when he sees it at one point, right? So you get a sense that you know because otherwise it doesn't make a lot of sense for like you know Bilbo to show up with the ring of power and everyone be like hey how's it going buddy you know and nobody cares <laughs> uh, you know like so they, they add a little bit of that but there's a long conversation in the movie about the uh, possible ascension of the necromancer in the Mirkwood forest and and Galadriel is talking with is talking with her telepathy to, to Gandalf about a bunch of stuff and and Kate Win- Kate, uh, not Kate Winslet Kate Blanchett is of course beautiful as she always is in that role and imposing and, and we've got Hugo Weaving which is great um as elrondish as ever but it's like you don't need that in the movie right um but the thing that the, the, to, to get back to what mark said about this aesthetic being 
the same versus different. There are important ways in which this movie is very different from the Lord of the Rings movies. And the most important one is, I think, also related to this issue of scope that we've brought up, which is that the, the in the Lord of I think I personally think one of the few shortcomings of the Lord of the Rings series is that it loses a lot of the opportunity uh, of putting the hobbits at the center of the story. Uh, there's there's an aesthetic opportunity, there's an ideological opportunity, where you have this grand historical fantasy epic thing, uh, and it's being told to you sort of through the eyes of these very humble, very simple people that have this uh, particular sort of lifestyle that does not match up with the high fantasy lifestyle, and there's an irony there that kind of brings you close to understanding it and kind of uh, has an aesthetic value. And the movies go much more than the books do towards just ratcheting up the high fantasy and kind of keeping the Hobbit stuff kind of lower down. Uh, the, the Hobbit is much more about the Hobbit stuff. Like, there's lots and lots of the movie that is about food. Um, there's a lot, there are songs. Um, there's there's a, a, a really touching scene with a very cute hedgehog, uh, where the hedgehog is inflict is afflicted with a kind of evil magic, and Radagast the brown wizard has to sort of extract the evil magic from the hedgehog, and it's like really intense and sad, and oh he's so cute, and oh he's getting better. Um, now of course there are still beheadings in the movie, so it's not like it's a children's movie. Um, so it's in a weird middle place, but uh, but yeah, Ben, were you reacting to the beheadings? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just that's that's still in there. Don't worry. There's still people getting their heads chopped off. So, you know, that much, even though you haven't seen the movie. Oh, uh, no, I just thought it was funny that you're you were saying that. Oh, OK, OK. I was, I'm not used to people actually laughing at the things that I say. So it's. Uh... <laughs> oh, please. No, no. Oh, is that a humble brag? Oh, yeah. It's just... hey, I'm the host. We're, I'm, I'm, we're, we got to move forward on this quest. You know, we don't have time to accuse the host of so, being. So, passive. So, so, let's get down to brass tacks here. We haven't quite got can't quite get a read on how you like or dislike the movie based on your comments so far. Did you find it to be an enjoyable, what, 170-minute unexpected journey? Or what did it feel like a uh, unexpected and unwelcome journey at 170 minutes? Oh, it's, it's fun. It's totally fun. I really liked okay. it. I, en- I had a good time. No, I enjoyed the movie. It's, it's fun. It's funny. Uh, it doesn't feel long. I mean, there are parts of it that feel useless. Like, there's parts of it where it's like, this doesn't <laughs> have to be in here. Um, but by the time, and there are, like, cliche elements. You know, there are big fight scenes that last for a long time that don't have to be there, right? There's there's this whole, there's a whole plot, subplot involving the Pale Orc, which is, I believe, a character from the appendices of The Hobbit and not the actual story, for the most part, who is this sort of uh, kind of Moby Dick blonde guy from Die Hard villain, <laughs> you know, like, who, like, is... Uh, <laughs> Is like this big imposing bad guy, and uh, and they have Thor and Oakenshield have this vendetta with this pale orc, and he's not really a part of the Hobbit story. It's it, it feels a little bit forced. Um, yeah, and like there's a bunch of scenes that are similar to the scenes from the Lord of the Rings where they're running through cave systems, and it looks pretty much the same as it did, and you don't need to see that again. There's a lot of there's a you know what there's a ton of in this movie, which is I mean if you guys have seen it, I'd love to hear your take on it. But in general, I'll say there's like Tons and tons of scenes of really, really high precipices or like huge expanses of air beneath people. I mean, I saw it in 3D IMAX, which I almost never do, but I saw it for this one. And it's just like there are so many times where the camera goes over a cliff and you're like, whoa, right? Like, like that's a <laughs> big drop. Uh, and it's, it's almost like uh, – it's almost like the crane shots in Harry Potter 4 where like the camera's following around the broomstick all the time. It's just, it seems like a pretty – 
I mean, I think they're trying to sort of give you the sense of this journey is scary. You know, like the Hobbit is in a big world and he's a small guy and yeah. this stuff is threatening to him. And that's what it's trying to do. But it's a major part of the aesthetic of the movie. Yeah, th- those uh, cliff shots that you described there, I think, are, are part of the broader aesthetic trend that has resulted from CGI landscapes, which makes it very easy. I don't know, it's very easy. Uh-huh. More, much more trivial to do that sort of shot when in the past you'd need like a freaking helicopter, right? I had not heard that. That actually makes a lot of sense. Because a lot of those things are just impossible. Like, those places can't actually exist. My sense of the original Lord of the Rings is a lot of those actually were helicopter shots. I mean, they went to New Zealand to film the damn thing, presumably because they have this crazy geography there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me, given the relative scale of the landscape shots in the two series, that perhaps in the original Lord of the Rings series there was a lot more helicopter shots of New Zealand landscapes and in this one there's a lot more computer generated composites of New Zealand landscapes Um, like there's a scene where these giant rock monsters battle each other and the rock monsters sort of come out of the mountain that they're climbing um, and it becomes very unclear where the mountain is and where the rock monsters are it gets a little bit Michael Bayish with like fragments of rock flying all over the place <laughs> and I think at one point Shia LaBeouf is running down the street holding like a notebook or something get <laughs> to the place I run gotta get to the place um, but yeah, no, but, it's, but it's like it's like you're not sure which way is up. You're not sure like what is happening. This is this can't be an actual place. This has to be something that's yeah. happening in a computer. Um, hey, where did you hear about that, Mark? The CGI landscape stuff. Do you remember? Oh, I don't know if it's anything that I've read. It's just something that I've observed. observed. It's basically starting since Star Wars Episode One with all mm-hmm. the the shots of of Naboo and I don't. You know, it also really occurred to me in of all things the movie Thor. Um, which be- because uh, the the Asgard right is that where the where all the yeah um, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Asgard that land is all completely fantastical and three D generated. And I remember there being a lot of sweeping vistas and and shots that would not be possible were not for computer graphics. Um, yeah, thankfully this one was better. That one had that terrible problem where it was three D shot with Dutch angles where it didn't work. Right? Well, it also <laughs> was, it was also up converted from two D. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. So yeah, that's so it was, like, it, it was that, that converted, and you work. turned your head to look at the picture, but then the three D didn't work. So it was really kind of an annoying. We had a lot of problems that weren't just yeah. related to his three uh, D presentation. Uh, yeah. But speaking of the technical aspects of this movie, um, Pete, did you see this in high frame rate three D IMAX or just plain old three D IMAX? There were four different versions of this movie playing at the movie theater that I went to, and I didn't know which one to buy tickets to. It was really confusing, and it kind of fooled Google, too. Uh, and, like, I eventually found the show that my friends were going to to buy the ticket, and they just didn't know where it was. You know, they, they were sort of like, ah. So I what were the versions? from Google error from Google being like, we can't do it. Sorry. What, um, were, what were the four versions? Uh, regular 2D, regular 3D. 3D IMAX, maybe regular IMAX. I'm not sure, um, but I don't. I know. I know. I got three down before I found the one I was looking for. But I had to. But they weren't all in a row. Like the first two were at the top, and then it was a like you know Red Dawn and a bunch of other <laughs> stuff, and then the other two were at the bottom. Um, yeah, I have to go back. I think it was the two IMAX versions and the two non IMAX versions. Um, oh, and of course, all sold as different movies. The, this movie ticket cost me eighteen dollars to see this movie, nice. uh, which was absurd. Definitely not worth that. It's not worth twice the price of a regular movie, which still should be in the neighborhood of like ten bucks. But hey, if you see the HFR version of it, you will see twice as many frames 
as you would the normal person. So maybe that might be worth twice <laughs> value right there. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I didn't mention this earlier. So, um, you know, in terms of uh, the story and the lack of stakes and the fact that we've been to Middle Earth before, was not that interested in seeing The Hobbit. I'm hugely, hugely curious and interested in seeing the high frame rate version of it because this is a totally novel, different uh, presentation for movies that, uh, as far as I know, has never been done at this wide scale. Um, and I've heard all sorts of different takes on it, how like it feels like a soap opera, it feels cheap, versus like it'll like blow your mind with the detail and immersiveness of it. Um, obviously, none of us having not, you know, having none of us having not, because none of us have seen it, we can't comment on it. Uh, but I would really want to hear from uh, our our listeners in the in the in the comments of this post if you have seen it to report on the experience. Mm. I mean, it reminds me of when. Oh, go ahead. I was, let me ask, let me ask this more generally because like I saw Life of Pi and we were deciding between the 3D and the regular. Is it reaching? Is at some point it going to start to roll back for? Few, is one of the new formats going to win out between regular 2D, 2D IMAX, 3D IMAX, regular 3D, high frame rate, high frame you rate. You could 3D, theoretically have high frame five rate or six IMAX. different right. So at yeah. some point, are, is something going to win? Is, is are we in the era of VHS versus Beta at the theater, where you're going to have these different f- formats, but eventually people are going to kind of settle on kind of the tradition, you know, two sort of maybe maybe at most two different options that you know the high and the low. Mm. I don't know. I think that um, I don't think I don't think it's going to consolidate. Uh, I, and I know that the 3D. Um, you know, fad for lack of a better word, right? The, the sort of current interest in in 3D that kind of motivates people to actually want to see 3D movies, this sort of demand bump for 3D and the culture has kind of leveled off, right? And, and 2D right. movie ticket receipts have gone back up and 3D movie ticket receipts have gone back down. But it's still a premium price offering that you can offer to people. It's a question of, well, do enough people want to see the 3D version of this movie to make it worth putting in the theater? And also, are there going to be enough 3D movies, enough of those movies that exist that I want my theater outfitted with an expensive 3D projector, right? And then also if your theater already has expensive 3D projectors, then their upfront costs for running the 3D movies uh, are probably already largely taken care of. And as such, they have a strong incentive to keep running the 3D movies, even if they don't expand the the capacity. So I think what you're going to see is that you're going to see more 3D uh, you'll probably see more like what happened to The Hobbit, where they could have had Red Dawn and Red Dawn 3D and The <laughs> Hobbit and The Hobbit 3D, but instead they just had four versions of The Hobbit and everything else was just regular, right? Um, and I think that it's like you got to figure out what movies are going to demand that price premium for the 3D version or the IMAX version and what movies are going to be oriented towards it in terms of how they're designed, and those will be the movies that will get the extra bump, Um and I think you'll see – and then there's a demand for those kinds of movies then. And then people want to be making movies that will be the 3D movie so it can get that capacity out there in the market. I think that makes sense because like I would be much more willing to pay extra money to see The Hobbit in 3D where I think there's going to be a big value add than a post-converted – you know, a hastily converted in-post 3D movie that is going to be worse because it's so dark that I can't even tell what's going on. Yeah. Which I have experienced. I mean, one thing that is happening, one of the previews at The Hobbit was for Jurassic Park 3D, which Mm. actually looks pretty awesome. And I I mean, this is, at this point, you know, enough data points is a trend. You were seeing, you know, these theaters have bought these 3D projectors, and, but the studios maybe don't want to do as much of the 2D conversion to 3D of the movies because it's not as lucrative anymore. 
you'll see maybe more and more of that capacity taken up in 3D versions of pre-existing movies. Yeah. Uh, that, that can charge, charge some premium there for, oh. for the extra price for a low cost. Yeah, speaking of um, which, we haven't brought this up on, uh, on overthinking it either on the site or on the podcast, um, but it's worth mentioning that the Top Gun 3D conversion is coming out in theaters next year. That's happening, oh, guys. Yeah. Wow. That's, the volleyball yes. is so real. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be awesome. I, that movie, I would, I would see that movie 3D. I mean, uh, I'm very much for, yeah, I mean, I would. Even, I hope that they do. I, I'm curious to what they do with the sound when they re-release the movie because the sound in that movie is so wonderful, especially at the beginning. That that initial kind of sexualized fighter jet scene. Uh, it, it, just to hear the Top Gun theme really sort of blown out, you know, really kind of in a contemporary sound setup, that that in and of itself might be worth, if not the price of admission, then at least a third of the price of admission. Um, <laughs> hey, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let, let's take this conversation about uh, movie economics in a slightly different way, um, and that is about franchise uh, expansion. Um, mm-hmm. So what we've seen with Star Wars recently is that this, when you have some, a hugely valuable asset like uh, a Star Wars, the franchise that is Star Wars, um, mm-hmm. it's kind of foolish to just let it sit around and say that I'm done with this. I'm not going to make any more Star Wars. It's done. Uh, you know, no more movies, no more TV shows, no more nothing. Right? Like the, it's almost like inevitable that movie uh, economics will, uh, will will demand that somebody's going to make more of Star Wars. Right. right, and we talked about this course with Terminator as well too. Where like this, the, like the rights to this franchise keep getting passed around because somebody feels like you know there's it's this valuable thing. You know, somebody should try to exploit some more value out of this. Um, and uh, there's some sense of like, and sometimes it's like these things, these sequels feel unnecessary, feel unneeded. Other times where people are really craving more of these stories. And here we have Lord of the Rings, right? Where um, it's sort of unclear people are really craving more of these stories, but another one existed outside of the Lord of the Rings franchise. So it seemed like a no-brainer, like, hey, let's make this. Um, so the question for the panel kind of is, like, you know, is um, to what extent was this, you know, like uh, necessary or superfluous? And, like, you know, given this idea that movie franchises will be exploited to their maximum extent possible, like, where does Lord of the Rings go from here? But if I say here, I mean like after the next two Hobbit movies come out to complete the Hobbit, <laughs> yeah, the Hobbit trilogy. Not, they've already split this into three, so they're, they're already they're already working hard at squeezing every last dime out of this thing. I mean, I'm going to see the six part Silmarillion movie, uh, which is just each right. one is four hours long, and it's just it's 24 straight hours. It's actually in in real time, like an episode, like a season of 24. <laughs> uh, have you guys read the Silmar? If you haven't read the Hobbit, you probably not read the Silmarillion. I'm no. guessing. I'm aware um, of it. I've definitely heard that joke before. That the Silmarillion. I'm aware of it, and I've definitely heard that joke that the Silmarillion movies are coming out next, but I have not read uh, them. Oh yeah, well it's going to be pretty awesome because it's really complicated and none of the characters are identifiable. Uh, they're all very indistinct from each other, uh, but uh, they have very fancy names. Um, I mean, where does the Lord of the Rings franchise go? You could do a TV show about the adventures of Sam as a gardener. You could uh, you could do more albums. I mean, it's like, like well, Lord of the Rings series has already gone to all these places, right? Like, you have all these other Lost Tales books that Peter Tolkien put together, right? And you have, like, all the expanded... It's not like it's quite as blown out as Star Wars, but it's pretty close. Um, but even then, if you spend, what, three more years getting out three more movies, and they can ride off that... Then you, then you re-release the original ones in 3D, right? Um, that, yeah. that, I mean, like, 20 uh, years from now, I guess you could do a remake, right? Yeah, sure. You could do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, you could do them different. You know, you could uh, 
you could do all of the characters played by Andy Serkis um, and motion <laughs> capturing everybody. That I thought you were going to say all. I thought you were say all the characters played by Eddie Murphy. That I would pay to see. <laughs> Uh, my Eddie Murphy impression is not what it used to be. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it's uh, what do you mean I gotta get a ring? I wanna put the ring in no mountain, I gotta put the ring in my hand. Why you put a ring in the mountain? Mountain, no, mountain, no place for it. Jewelry, I gotta go to a jewelry shop, get a pawn shop, get a ring, get a ring, all walk my ass all the way over to Mordor. I bust my ass getting to Mordor. Gee. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thanks for that. Sorry, guys. Thanks for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's classics. That, like, what are we going to do with the brand equity of the Eddie <laughs> Murphy impression, which hasn't been trotted out in two years? Uh, how are we going to do that? Um, uh, excuse me, my glasses are fogging up here from that one. So, <laughs> I, maybe this is overly optimistic, but I tend to think that something like Lord of the Rings has a bit of a built in firewall of the fact that it's. Everything was written by J.R.R. Tolkien, and there's not there's not like prequels, there's not like sequels to Lord of the Rings that they could film. They would have to make it up from whole cloth, and I think there'd be a lot of there wouldn't be as much enthusiasm for that as say Star Wars, where it started out as a movie franchise. It was always a movie franchise, so it's much easier to just be like, well, nope, we're gonna make some more. Hmm. I, 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 the hesitation I think people would have to the Lord of the Rings sequel is not so much that you know, J.R.R. Tolkien is gone and he wrote the books, you know, and, and not originally as a, as a movie trilogy. I think it's more just like the the storytelling possibilities have been have limited so much, right? Like every any possible conflict that comes in the wake of the epic battle um, that ended Return of the King is going to be like pathetically small in comparison, right? Mm. I mean, does, Sauron, does Sauron come back? You know, like, yeah, exactly. Unless it's like the return of Sauron, which would, I think, anger people as well. I mean, you could do the stories of the Silmarillion. I mean, here's the real thing. I'm not the real thing, but here's one way of looking at it: it's like there are these stories about the Tolkien universe. They are the extended the extended universe stuff, as you were like the stuff that Tolkien left unfinished in his notes and was fleshed out. And the real obstacle to making any of it a movie is that it sucks. Right. It's like it's not that it's it's boring. And so the Lord of the Rings is actually worse off in terms of creating a sequel than a movie that had nothing. Right. (laughs) Like like if if you wanted to make a sequel to like I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, like if you just wanted to make more Twilight, like, okay, you could have. And I I do. And we do. If you want to make more Twilight, you can have their kid grow up. If there were already a series of books about the kid and they sold terribly and nobody liked them and they were really boring and prosaic, then like that would probably be more difficult to greenlight than a trashy, terrible movie based on non-existing material. You know what I mean? Because what's what's there to say that you have to use the, the existing material that's not any good? I, I guess. Right. Like, why are we saying that that somehow, like, you know, sets a uh, an assumed path that it must be d- dealt with and uh, diffi- with difficulty before you can go on and just like do the more obvious and better stories? P- particularly Wait. with the Silmarillion, where you've got. It sounds like the problem with the Silmarillion isn't that the, there are uninteresting things going on; it's just there aren't good characters. You could probably read a lot into that i mean just based on my only not you could probably do a movie about the first battle against sauron with a sealed door and you yeah. can get hugo weaving to be in it again because he has to be in all of them 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, the Silmarillion, the characterizations in the book are a little bit bad, and I think that you could make a good – you could do the whole Valar stuff, whatever. You could do it if you wanted to. Um, but what I, was, what I would say is that it's not just an issue of feeling compelled to having to base it off of this thing. It's that, So why do you do – why do you do these franchise movies? Right, like, why would you? Why do you prefer to do a movie from a franchise than a movie that isn't from a franchise? And I'd say there are two reasons. And the first one is that there are people who already like this franchise who are going to come see your movie because it's for the franchise. And the other reason is that the the success of the franchise demonstrates that there's something about the story that works. Right, and that that um, that it's difficult to figure out if you're an executive or a producer. It's difficult to figure out what movies are going to be good and what movies are going to be bad. It's a very unpredictable business sometimes, um, and so if you have something that has already been successful, uh, not only are you drawing in their audience, but you can say, okay, well. You know, then then there's something in there that people like, and not only do I not have to go looking for something for people to like, I also don't have to as hard of a job convincing the other people that I have to get on board with this at my corporation that this is a good idea, right? So, like, if you consider what if what if I made an original story about you know vampire pregnancy or whatever, um, and there there wasn't you know the existing Breaking Dawn stuff. Uh, it might be very hard to get an idea through all of the approval processes it would have to get through to get made, uh, to get greenlit, and it could get eviscerated and be terrible by the time it is greenlit. And having something that has proven that it's successful, that you can base it off of, has political advantages within the framework of making – of like the movie business, right? right. And no, so, one ever got, yeah. no one ever got fired for greenlighting a sequel. Well, right, right. I mean I'm sure people, people have. Right, but I'm sure it's people hard. have, but it's – yeah, it, then greenlighting a – a big budget movie, original movie that turns out to be bad. Like if you greenlight the Hobbit and the Hobbit turns out to suck and lose money, like I can understand, like, you know, you probably like, that's kind of an understandable mistake, right? right. Cause you, it's a natural, but if you greenlight the Silmarillion and it loses a hundred million dollars, like you look like an idiot, right? Like you just, you just look, <laughs> you just look crazy, right? Because, and, and I think that, um, that, that what it shows is that there's a boundary – having crappy, unpopular parts of your franchise uh, shows that there's a boundary around the success of your franchise, and it might make people more scared about expanding what's happening around your franchise. Right, like like Star Wars, Star Trek, for example, has you know tons. It has all the TV, the Enterprise stuff, the Next Generation stuff, the Deep Sea Nine stuff, the Voyager stuff, um, all the way through Voyager. It wasn't hard to get new Star Trek movies made. They were made all the time. Uh, there's a whole bunch of them. A lot of them are kind of crappy. But, like, there was something that was fairly reliable. There was a certain degree of quality that was expected. And uh, and you knew that it was going to be okay because the shows were okay. Uh, You're talking but then, about, whatever, like, the movies that came out, like, the, the Next Generation cast movies that came out yeah, like, while like, Star Trek Voyager was on TV. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm talking mostly about the, the post-First Contact movies, of which there are a couple. Um, <laughs> and uh, and also Generations, to, an, to a lesser extent, which was kind of crappy. Um, but, but, I mean, once you've made Enterprise, and it's just awful, or, you know, I mean, the show itself is awful, but, like, it's pretty clear that you've lost your way, and this, this you've reached sort of the boundary of what people are willing to accept from your franchise. It makes people a lot more cautious 
about you know continuing to produce new content. So then what you do is you you know they have to do to do the reboot. They have to like really wind up and they have to like do a lot of extra work and they have to expend a lot of extra money and a lot of extra time, right? And and so rebooting you have to reboot Star Trek because whatever it was that you had going for you is over. Mm-hmm. And so, I think so. That, so yeah. what does the Lord of the Rings gritty reboot look like? And when can I, <laughs> and when can I see it? Oh man! Well, first it might be entirely it might be an entirely CGI movie for children, um, or is it about um, like Gandalf is like. Uh, Gosh, he's like he's like Gandalf is actually it's like actually psychedelic. Like Gandalf is actually uh, like smoking up all the time, and is uh, and like Bilbo is has diabetes and Aragorn <laughs> a single mom. No, Gandalf's got the the bat the bat bale voice. The yeah the yeah, yeah exactly. he just growls everything. No, I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell you what it is. Is that Middle Earth just has a huge amount of like of like developing world slums, right? Like all over the place, right? Like Middle Earth is not pretty. Middle Earth is like terribly ugly, and I don't mean all those places are ugly, but it's like it's much more like a slumdog millionaire kind of thing, where it's like, oh, look at how these people suffer in the way that like we can we can be kind of like looking out the doors of our limousine and like the at these poor people. <laughs> Uh, whilst, whilst failing to identify with them in a meaningful way, I have a very unpopular beef with Slumdog Millionaire personally. But that's that's. Um, I don't know if you guys feel the same way about it, but I basically see it as kind of an Orientalist, exoticist little rascals. Uh, where it's like, hey, it would be better if they were Indian, because then people would think it was serious. Um, but it's uh, and uh, but anyway, it's uh, as opposed to silly is what they think now. To our other topic, by the way, talking about Slumdog Millionaire <laughs> and like self-consciously pretentious movies about uh, exoticism. Um, do we want to make that jump, or are we not ready to make that jump yet? <laughs> uh, let's make the jump. Let's go, let's okay. go for it. Okay. So, yeah. Hit me with the segue. Hi, <laughs> life of pie, ladies and gentlemen. Was that like? I mean, was that? I mean, my my incriminations are probably undeserved and perhaps hyperbolic. Um, Life of Pi. You guys both saw it. Uh, I mean, sorry, tell me what the how the exoticism is before you give me also the the rundown of like what you thought of the movie. Just to clarify for people, this is a movie that's based on an Indian novel, right? And it's it's an Ang Lee movie, which means it's going to be contemplative and it's going to have like like long stretches of stuff that's that's kind of like aesthetically, uh, you know, kind of in in poise, right? Right. So let's just break down. Um Life of Pi is sort of the, the, the important who's, right? So Ang Lee is a director. The narrator the, and the uh, the central figure in the story is a Indian teenager, right? Um, the novel itself was written by um, a, a Frenchman or a French-Canadian person or something like that. Um, but uh, in the movie Life of Pi, um, a like a French-Canadian author, I think, comes to – a white guy comes to meet – um, this Indian guy, and and uh, and he then he tells him the story about being stuck on a boat with a tiger. Um, so I mean, like there the 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 surface exoticism is that like a white person is uh is being told this fantastic story about a dark person. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I'm gonna just start there and uh, then take it away from there and and, and yeah, and give I've, the appropriate. I've read the, I've read the novel, enjoyed the novel. It the the movie hues very very closely to it. I don't mean that in a bad sense, but the it's been a while, so it might not be blow by blow the same, but it's very, very similar. It it, it hits pretty much all of the same tonal notes, both for better and for worse, mm-hmm. um, as the book. So I don't think you can put it all on Ang Lee. It's definitely a, a an adaptation. Um, I, I will to say, combat, go ahead to go combat ahead. the exoticism claim. 
I think there is some of that, but it's um, cut a little bit by the fact that so the the narr- the I don't know, I guess the narr- the the novelist that goes to meet Pi, the narrator as a as an adult, he's not like living in a he's like living in a suburban life in Canada with like a wife and kid and a, you know, presumably a golden retriever. Like it's, he's not portrayed as particularly exotic in his adult life, at least, even though he has this fantastic story. Yeah. I would say that the movie is not so much about, uh, about that sort of exoticism. I mean, like, the exoticism that it is about is inherent in this fact that there's a freaking, uh, Bengal tiger in the book. Right. right? Um, but that's the sort of thing that like really takes you out of your element. And you look at like, that is strange and that is different. Um, yeah. So to the extent that there uh, that uh, exoticism is a problem in life of Pi, not really. No. Um, I don't know. Should we talk about the things that are a problem with the movie Life of Pi? <laughs> well, can I ask? I didn't want to see the movie because I don't want to see a child eaten by a tiger. Uh, and, and I was scared that that was going to happen. I was like, I don't want to be sitting there the whole time being like, uh, I don't want to watch a human being eaten by a tiger. Uh, spoiler we, alerts for Life of Pi: I, I, well, a child does not get eaten. No, child is not getting sh- by a tiger. Other things get eaten by a tiger. I, the kid. I'm not even sure that's a spoiler because the movie is the child as an adult talking about the time he was with this tiger. So you you kind of okay, know at the beginning point. of the movie that he does not get eaten by a tiger. <laughs> <laughs> well, as soon as someone said like, "Hey, there's a kid in a boat with a tiger," I was like, "I know where this is going to go." Right? Like, I mean, I can't. It's hard to to see that it going any other way than the tiger but, eating the kid, right? But before but, we back too hard on it, it is a beautiful movie. Yes. Um, I, I did not see it in 3D. I kind of wish I had because there's a lot of scenes where you could tell it'd be probably really, probably be really, really worth seeing in in 3D because it's it's yeah. really gorgeous. Uh, I saw it in mm-hmm. 3D, and um, I'm generally not a big fan of uh, 3D movies and don't think they add a whole lot. Um, I will say that um, it, it's the best movie to see in 3D since Avatar in terms of adding things in 3D. Pete. <laughs> <laughs> You mean in terms of, of hair sex? Does the kid have hair sex with the tiger? Because <laughs> that would be a direction I would not expect the movie to go in. Um, Spoiler alerts, no. How are the tiger's breasts? That's what I want to know. Does the tiger have breasts? Because then it's then it's making – that's the avatar difference right there is if the tiger has breasts. Um, no, that's, so, a movie, so, that's a movie of problematic exoticism. I feel like I did the movie a disservice by framing it in terms of my own gripes with an unrelated movie that just happens to be from <laughs> the same billion-person country uh, or its literature. Um, so like, what would you say is the primary kind of ideological or aesthetic force that is driving this story forward. Why is this a story that needs to be told? The story of a kid who is, you know, in a in a boat with a tiger. Uh, because it's supposed to make you believe in God. Oh, that makes okay, okay. Yeah, it's that, the very explicit. Oh, and that's probably the biggest complaint is that it's probably too explicit. Message of the movie is very it's very tied up with religion. Oh, interesting, interesting. Um, it is, but it isn't though. Um, I mean, oh gosh, this this movie is so frustrating in in its high mindedness and and big concept and and its inability to execute on it that it just it, it really does bother me. I don't know if we're gonna be able to have a, give it justice in the amount of time we have left in here, but like it bothers me tremendously. Ben, it sounds like I mean, it it kind of has two. I don't know how related, but two things to say about religion. I don't know how well it lands them both. The first that kind of deals with the front end because the the main character like 
believes in all these different religions at once and that's kind of like a plot point is that he's not like specifically religious that he like has he's a muslim he's a christian he's a buddhist he's a hindu all at the same time and so it's kind of the there's an old there's an analogy there's an old analogy about the blind men um with the elephant you know touching the different parts of it and that's supposedly the different parts of god so it's kind of got some of that going on and it also and this is definitely is a spoiler alert is there's at the end of the movie you find out that the story that you told that you've been hearing with the tiger and all the other animals is really, or maybe not really, but is possibly interpreted as a metaphor for specific people that instead of these animals being on the life raft, there were people that, but he was still the only survivor and that you can choose to believe one or the other. And that that's what religion is life is like is that you can choose to believe a religious story for creation or a non-religious story for creation. Is that, that kind of what you took away from it, Mark? Yeah. And that's somehow like that. Um, what does he say? Like, so it goes with God. Right. Right. Like somehow like, you know, divorcing, um, like the, the actual truthful quality of a particular narrative, uh, is a pathway to belief and is, uh, one of the ways in which faith works. And after that, I was like really scratching my head and, and thinking like, what? Are you supposed to say like, okay, so like all these stories we read in, read in the Bible and the Torah and the and, and the um, the sacred texts of Islam, which I'm totally blanking on right now. Quran. Uh, the Quran. Like, <laughs> we're, we're basically supposed to be able to read those and be like, okay, well, all these things could be complete malarkey, and it could be you know uh, a, 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 the the chef and the wife instead of the the tiger and the and and the donkey or and and the zebra. And, um, and, and that's okay, you know, because like somehow like, you know, my, uh, these different stories, you know, somehow justified by what, like revealing greater truths, uh, even though it might be completely false. It just didn't sit, didn't sit well with me. I I think Mm -hmm. that's what, and it's it's worth noting here that the the movie's been criticized, maybe rightly that it's pretty, I mean, it's so ham handed that literally at the end of the story, <clears throat> the French Canadian author says, so the mother, the, the zebra stands for the sailor. The orangutan stands for the mother. The tiger stands for like literally laying out what the metaphor is person by person. Mm-hmm. It's not right, even like right. implied. Yeah, that was it's, the movie's uh, going back to Avatar. That was the movie's unobtainian moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happens in the Hobbit too. Where Gandalf's like, so you represent great Britain and you represent Nazi Germany. <laughs> 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 yeah, exactly. You're a Kaiser Wilhelm the First. I'm Bane because of my voice, which changed abruptly to this. Um, <laughs> sorry, I lost it. I lost it a little bit. Yeah, no the the whole the whole heavy the Hobbit is also very much about Jesus. The whole end of the last forty five minutes of the movie are, are a screed against using condoms. Uh, <laughs> it's just like, well, you gotta be open to the act of conception, dwarves. Get to work. Um, so uh, speaking of speaking of uh, of getting to work, I know Mark, you wanted to work it on one last topic before we shut it down. We got a couple minutes left before we gotta ride this off into this into the sunset. Before we gotta go through Shelob's layer into Mordor, uh, is there anything else you wanted to address before we wrap it up today? Okay, let's do this. Let's get this off of my chest. Um, <laughs> okay. A lot of you in major cities in the United States and perhaps around the world um, were treated to this phenomenon called SantaCon. This past weekend, if you're not familiar with it, um, the uh, the on the surface idea of it is that people dress up as Santa. It's a totally grassroots movement, but it's somehow coordinated 
across multiple metropolitan areas that uh, on a certain day in December, uh, everybody dresses up in Santa outfits and they just sort of hit the town and they have a good time. That's what it is supposed to be about. What it turns into be is a, uh, a horrific uh, citywide uh, pub crawl that involves, at least in New York City, twenty an estimated 20,000 Santas, a, a sizable portion of which are drunk and unruly to the point where they're basically a public menace. Um, uh, I, had, I had this moment on, on, a, on a subway ride where a huge group of unruly Santas got on the train. They were yelling. They, were, they, they smelled bad. They were playing loud music. Um, came very close to uh, you know, spilling drinks and, and falling on top of other passengers, myself included. Um, I, it was one of those days where I, I, I thought I you know, was going to come to blows with, um, with unruly people on the train. It would have been really bad if it, one of them, it was a person in the You were going to punch there. Santa Claus? You I think so, punch- right? Okay, so this is what I want to talk about with you guys. Okay, the underthinking reaction to, to SantaCon is, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. These people are terrible. These people are terrible. These people are terrible. I am cooling down from my uh, moment of uh, Santa-induced rage uh, from the weekend, and I'm trying to just sort of think more prosaically about Santa as a pop culture figure, as an icon, as something that, um, you know, like, is such a ripe target for subversion in this way. I'm just trying to make sense of it all. Well, I mean, up here, I don't know if you guys have it have it down there too, but up here in Boston, there was there were Santa runs. I think there was even a Santa Speedo run where you were supposed to wear a Santa hat and a Speedo, and you're supposed to run like a 5K road race, something along those lines. So that's like they're often uh, there. There definitely are Santa cons and Santa yeah. pub crawls. But oh, that, I, that I should also here. add that like there's a chair often is a charitable uh, component to Santa cons where like you know, people will meet at the uh, you know meeting meeting locations and they will donate food or they will you know donate money to charities um, in the name of the event. Um, which is related to like the Santa runs and Santa five Ks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so your question is sort of how else can we make encountering Santa in real life tremendously unpleasant, or how? What is the? What is the, the, the it's more of the why. A why? Like yeah. why would encountering Santa be so unpleasant? No, it's, it's like why is it that people choose to subvert Santa Claus and to feel this need to subvert Santa Claus in this way by uh, by being a drunken mess of a Santa Claus, along with well, like thousands of other drunken messes of Santa Clauses. Well, this adds a certain anonymity to it, right? Like if everyone is wearing a uniform, then you're just following orders and you don't have to be accountable <laughs> for your, your actions. No, no, no I'd say I but joke, there are I'm no joking. orders. That's the weird thing. It's like, it's, a, it's this, there are no orders. It's like, as far as I can tell, I was doing some research before this podcast. Like there's no, uh, it's very difficult to pin down like any person or organization that is behind SantaCon. It's like part of this fortunic discourse, which we always talk about. Like, follow the money, Mark. <laughs> follow the money. You got to find. Look, if you track the nano thermite in the Santa hats, you'll find out that SantaCon was an inside job. Uh, right. <laughs> 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 That's actually not about the onion right now, which is Santa Claus saying 9-11 is an inside job. Uh, ho, ho, ho. I'm just saying the government was probably responsible in some way. Um, so you, the, no, on, I mean, on that note, I'm following the money. And I'm, I'm, you were. I'm, you're probably partly saying that in jest, but on one of the SantaCon websites uh, that's out there, um, you go to it and you see there's like party city advertisements splash all over it, right? And so the, the cynical thing, the, the way to, to think about that is, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the the military Santa Claus industrial costume industrial complex has created this holiday to sell more costumes. But no, it was the other way around. Um, like various, uh, you know, costume 
costumers uh, noticed that they were starting to sell tons and tons of more Santa outfits, and they realized it was coming from the SantaCon event, and so they contacted one of the websites uh, that houses SantaCon information, and they struck a deal to plaster the thing with advertisements. Mm-mm. I mean, I will say, I will say this: one thing that's missing from your calculus is that I think some people think this event is fun. Uh, like, in fact, I'd say a great many people enjoy it and have a fun time doing it, uh, which would help indicate why they would do it. Now, but the thing, the, the thing about everyone wearing the Santa hat while they do it is if you want to go out there and get ridiculously drunk and belligerent and be silly and crazy and all this other stuff, and this is the carnivalesque in culture, right? It's, it's common to do this with a mask of some sort on or to do it in a, a time and place that has been set aside uh, where people are not going to suffer social consequences for these things happening, right? We, we create these spaces like – like uh, football game tailgates, right? Where you're wearing the mm-hmm. colors of your team, and you know you're you know you're all going crazy, and and no one individual person is necessarily going to be judged for being too ridiculous, right? Or like uh, Halloween, where Halloween, Halloween has sort of become the sex hollow- holiday as well as a candy holiday. Right, where it's because like, people can dress up and they can do the things that they want to do on the regular days, but because of the social order, they really don't feel like they want it. They can do it, right? Like it's, um, it, they, they, it would, it would somehow um, put them in jeopardy. It would put them at risk to go around like dressed as a sexy cat in a normal day. But on Halloween, you can do it, right? <laughs> and so maybe it's that there's a market where it's like I want to get together with thirty thousand people and just get hammered like all over New York yeah. City. Yeah, uh, yeah. So part of me, you know, my my. Uh, knee-jerk, underthinking reaction was like, this should be banned, you know? Like, <laughs> Damn kids, like, get off my lawn. Stop this somehow, some way. Like, we're, like, we're not ready for this conversation now. That conversation needs to oh, wait. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Just... <laughs> sorry, that was dark. That was dark. I'm sorry. We're not going to go there. We're not going to address what that was about. We're not even going to – I said before the podcast we weren't going to address it. We're not going to address, not address it. Let's go. Okay. Okay, so um, – what you're, you're what I'm starting hearing from you, Pete, is like there is uh, this inevitable. Uh, I don't know if inevitable inevitable is the right word, but um, like you know, people left to their own devices, like are looking for this sort of outlet, right? And lacking SantaCon, they would find something other other crazy, ridiculous um, uh, opportunity to get drunk in public and make complete fools out of themselves. Right? It just so happens, <laughs> I mean, like I don't know, maybe in in December, like there's a lack of other opportunities for this. Uh, I mean, December is interesting because holiday parties sort of – there's so many holiday parties, right? Oh, so, uh, speaking of uh, you know, sort of more or less socially sanctioned uh, opportunities to, to, to be drunk and, and disgusting, right? the holiday parties in some ways are that. Yeah, I mean, we're going to have our own anniversary party in January. I, I hope I'm, – I'm thinking. I'm thinking that's going to happen, fifth anniversary of the site's coming up. But um, – I mean, we don't necessarily have to be. We don't have to be barbarians about it. We don't have to be philistines. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, but uh, but I'm not saying that they would necessarily. I think I mean these things grow, right? It's like some people start doing it and then it catches on, right? And it's it's something that goes over a tipping point at some point and becomes like a big social, uh, socially sh- shared experience. So I'm not saying that, that, that. Yeah, I think the internet helps it hit that tipping point because if you if you're deciding whether or not to go out on a Saturday to SantaCon, you're not just deciding for the the audience at the bar you happen to go to SantaCon with because you're also going to get a picture of yourself in a Santa outfit doing something ridiculous that you could post to Facebook and brag to all your friends that didn't go. Mm-hmm. And you can, you can go to a website and find out where all the other people dressed like Santa are going to be. The answer is the East Village. 
<laughs> I mean, or. if if you if you take it to that extent, think about adventure racing, right? Like putting up photos of yourself for everyone to see is a really important thing in contemporary social culture, and and so you know the, the races where you get covered in mud, which I and I do, I enjoy. Uh, I know a lot of people do women enjoy them, um, but one of the the benefits of that is you get to post the picture of yourself covered in mud on whatever social networking site you frequent, probably Facebook, um, if you're not me. But uh, but then that's that's part of the value proposition that you're getting that that we're in a position where there's demand for photographing yourself oriented holidays. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's it, it sounds it, it's kind of a mind blowing truth right there, right? Like <laughs> like social media and cameras and the ease with which we share images has created this huge uh, extra demand for uh, visually interesting things. That's right. Uh, and you know what? For that, the sky is the limit. Uh, whatever filters you get, like the world is all before you, and the world is all before us as well. As we bring this episode to a close and looking out on a bright new tomorrow of people taking Instagram pictures of themselves dressed as the Easter Bunny. But until that bold day comes, uh, I encourage you to write us in. We'd love to hear you comment on the show, get involved in the great conversation that we have on the show notes. You talk about the Hobbit. We didn't get to go into a lot of the specifics about the Hobbits, the adaptation, the aesthetic value love to see more conversation about that if you've either read or seen life of pi or are interested in it love to hear the conversation about that if you've got some sort of idea for debasing santa claus in a way that upsets mark i'd love to see that happen that's something that really needs to get out if you went to SantaCon and want to defend yourself right in definitely definitely tell us about that yeah, exactly. And yeah, and check out the gift guide. Uh, give us a give us a call at the voicemail at 203 Yeah, you got to know. Yeah, I know it. I just don't like the words that we use for it. Well, we don't use the words uh, anymore. That's true. You know what? The world the world is being reinvented every day, and that's what my photo stream is telling me. <laughs> uh, you know what? It really the truth is uh, every day the sun rises is another unexpected journey. And perhaps your next unexpected journey will take you to our home on the web, www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. It's the precious. Who has taken the precious? You took it. I'll kill you. No, I won't. No, I won't kill you. Yes, I'll ho ho ho. I'll kill it. I will. I'll eat the. I'll eat the small child that took the present out of my bag. No, don't do that. That's a terrible idea. Why are we doing this? Where's the precious? Uh, crane shot of a giant chasm that somebody fell down. I guess. That was Gandalf the Grey. I'm Gandalf the White. I'm Gandalf the Filipino. 